0: Once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Chapter 1? And if you're new with us, we welcome you. And just to let you know, we have recently begun a study through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And for the last few weeks, we have focused our attention on the first 18 verses, which forms John's introduction, or what the theologians call the prologue. Now. In this prologue, John introduces us to the true Christ, the only one in whom there is eternal life. Remember John wrote his gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that uh, all who read his gospel might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing would have life, eternal life in his name. And um, these first 18 verses have been primarily doctrinal and have served as a crash course on christology which is of course the study in nature a study on the nature and person of Jesus Christ and from this point on John's gospel takes the form of a narrative where he now begins to recount for us the life and ministry of Jesus and as such the first person John chooses to begin his narrative with is John the Baptist now as we've already pointed out John the Baptist was a colorful if not somewhat enigmatic character he uh, seemed to come out of nowhere and suddenly he bursts onto the scene with a message from god and yet some question whether john was really a spokesman for god if you're doubting that well just back up to verse six where john the apostle talking about john the baptist said there was a man sent from god whose name was john this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light the light would be jesus christ that all through him might believe." So John was a man sent from God with a message from God, which meant that John was a prophet of God. A prophet is somebody who spoke on behalf of God. Now not only was John a prophet, but Jesus said he was the greatest prophet that ever lived. And not only that, he went on to say, Jesus did in Luke 16 verse 16, that John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, which is kind of confusing since he doesn't actually appear in the Old Testament. He appears in the New Testament. Let me just say this. The term Old Testament refers to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. Um, This covenant, of course, was the one God made with Israel through Moses. It was a covenant based upon God's law, which he gave to the nation on Sinai. And uh, these laws became the terms of the covenant. Whenever people entered into a covenant, there was terms that each party had to fulfill. And uh, if both parties fulfilled the terms of the covenant, then the covenant was carried through to its fulfillment. If either one of the parties or both did not fulfill the terms of the covenant, the covenant was, now, was, uh, uh, was um, null and void. God said, my part is to give to you the most blessed existence as a nation to be your God and to bless you above every nation on the face of the earth. Your part of the covenant is to keep my law. Well, they didn't do so well at that. They failed miserably in keeping God's laws over the centuries. And so God spoke eventually to the prophet Jeremiah that he was going to replace the old covenant with a new covenant someday. You can read about that in Jeremiah 31. Verses thirty one to thirty four. Well, that day finally arrived with the coming of Jesus onto the scene, and this is what John is doing. He is announcing the Messiah's coming, and uh, John became, in that regard, the uh, last prophet of the Old Testament period. You know, closing out, uh, closing it out, and passing the baton, if you will, to Jesus, who was the prophet, if I could put it that way, the spokesman uh, of the uh, new covenant, the mediator, uh, Hebrews. Tells us Now, when Jesus shed his blood on Calvary's cross for our sins, the New Testament period began because the New Covenant had been officially ratified. The word covenant means to cut. And they would enter into these covenants with each other by taking an animal, killing it, and then cutting it into pieces and passing through the animal parts. It was a blood covenant ratified by blood. And so when Jesus died on the cross... His blood ratified the new covenant. It was a covenant literally in his blood. And uh, his part of the covenant was to give us eternal life. What was our part? Just to believe. Just to believe and receive it. Okay? And so as we move into the narrative of John's gospel, now we catch up with John the Baptist in the wilderness telling people to repent and prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. Now, you remember in our study a couple weeks ago, uh, where we said that there had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years before John. For 400 years, God had been silent. For 400 years, the nation had not heard a prophet say, thus says the Lord. Then finally, the silence was shattered by a voice thundering in the wilderness saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or in other words, prepare your heart, the king is coming. Prepare your hearts, the king is coming. After 400 years of not hearing a prophet speak on behalf of God, you've got to understand the people, the nation of Israel, was hungry, to say the least, to hear the word of the Lord through this new prophet that had nobody had heard a prophet in 400 years. Suddenly there was one in the wilderness crying out, uh, speaking on behalf of God, and the people flocked to John in droves to hear what he had to say. And remember, they were out in the, he was out in the wilderness, right? The wilderness of Judea, which meant that to hear him, they had to leave the comfort of their homes and towns and travel miles through rough terrain on foot to get to where John was preaching. My point is that John didn't make it easy on them. It would, it would cost them something to hear the word of the Lord. I sometimes wonder if we make it a little too easy for people to hear the word of God today. You don't have to do anything Uh, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing Uh, but you know I'm wondering you know John didn't go to people's homes and deliver the gospel personally they had to come out where he was Uh, he was not into what's called easy believism where you know he just made it so they had to prove they were hungry they had to prove that you know what Um, they were hungry enough to leave their comfort zone and to come out to a place that was wilderness, where it was kind of difficult because they were that hungry to hear what God had to say. Well, I would imagine it caused only the cream of the crop for the most part to come out and hear John, those who were really serious about God. Of course, it did draw some others as we're going to see in a moment. But listen, when people are hungry to hear the word of God, no sacrifice is too great, No inconvenience too much to keep them from coming. And guys, come they did by the thousands. In fact, so many flocked to hear John preach his message from God that it eventually attracted the attention of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem who sent a delegation out to see what was going on. And we pick it up in verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews, let me stop there. John uses the term the Jews over 70 times in his gospel. When John uses the term the Jews, he's not talking about the Jewish people in general. He's talking about the Jewish leadership in particular, the Sanhedrin. They were the supreme high court of Israel. All right, uh, the, the supreme, like our supreme court, they were, the, they were the, the high council, if you will, of the nation. And uh, so they sent... Priests and Levites from Jerusalem to John to ask him. Who are you? Now understand that that really wasn't Intended to be a kind of a polite question. It was more along the lines of a religious inquisition To paraphrase what they were basically saying to John was along these lines, okay Um, What's going on out here? All right Um, We didn't authorize any religious activity of this sort Where's your permit? It's a union tongue. Where's your permit? Uh, Who do you think you are, basically, is what they were saying, you know? This kind of thing happens all the time. Dead orthodoxy challenging a fresh work of God. You know, the established... Religious folks, whether in John's day or in our day, they don't like it when God begins to move in a fresh and powerful way. First of all, they refuse to believe it's a fresh work of God because they have a corner on that. God only works through their group or denomination. And when God raises up someone to be a voice in the wilderness, and often that wilderness includes dead orthodoxy, they don't like it, the religious establishment. When Calvary Chapel started Back in the 60s, all right, Uh, it was started by a man who had been a pastor for 17 years by that time, so he was not exactly a hippie, all right, he wasn't a hippie at all, Uh, but God raised them up to speak to the hippies, and man, these kids started coming, and they came in droves. Calvary Chapel was packed. And initially, pastors from all over the area told their young people in their, in their youth groups and their parents, don't let your kids go to Calvary Chapel. It's a cult. Yeah. But then what happened was, after a while, as Pastor Chuck just taught these kids the Word of God and they got set on fire, he sent them back into their churches to be a blessing to their pastors, to work hard in serving their churches. Then the pastors called and thanked Chuck because God really had blessed their ministries through this man who had taught the kids, set them on fire, the Holy Spirit did, and they went back to their church to be a blessing. But initially, dead orthodox, he doesn't like a fresh work of God, doesn't want to even acknowledge it. This is what was going on with these guys. Who do you think you are? You didn't go to our seminary. We didn't give you a degree to go out there and preach. Who do you think you are? That was what John was confronting. Now, look, let's cut some of these guys a break. Maybe all of them, I don't know, uh, where where all of them were coming from. I do sense probably an air of smugness uh, from these established religious leaders that they had a corner on truth and whatever. But I think that there were probably some, if not all of them, that were honestly uh, interested in who this guy might be. And so when they asked John, who are you, he understood that what was foremost on their minds was, was he the Messiah? In, in your New King James, John says, John confessed and did not deny, but confessed he was not the Messiah. That's just a way of saying, and in the Greek it's emphatic, he said. And they didn't really have to ask John this question directly. He knew what they were thinking. So who are you? He knew what they were thinking. He said emphatically, I am absolutely not the Messiah. Okay. Now we know from history that uh, messianic expectancy was running high during this period in Israel's history. Why? Why was so many Jews looking for the the Messiah? What was going on? Well, it it no doubt went back to the prophecy in Daniel chapter nine, verse twenty-five, when God actually gave the timing of Messiah's coming. Now I don't have time to get into it. You can go online, listen to our study from Daniel nine. Uh, we targeted verse 25 to talk about how God prophesied to the very day when Messiah would come, based on the command to go forth, that went forth to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You can check that out on your own. So they were messianic expectancy, we know from history, was running very high at this time. So when this character shows up in the wilderness preaching and people are coming by the thousands to hear him, well, naturally the leaders thought, could this be the Messiah? John says, no, absolutely not, not the Messiah. With that out of the way, these religious leaders then continued their interrogation of John in verse 21 by saying, then they asked him, well then, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now guys, from the questions they asked John, it was apparent that they were looking for one of three people. Of course, top of the list was the Messiah. He put that to rest, no, I'm not the Messiah. Next on our list of people they were looking for was Elijah. But why were they looking for Elijah? Well, it was because that the last promise that God gave to close out, not technically close out the Old Testament period, but remember after he made this promise in Malachi, he stopped speaking for 400 years. Kind of went off the air, you might say. stopped broadcasting. But one of the final things, the final promise he gave, in fact, it's the final two verses of our Old Testament, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, God said, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before judgment falls, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now listen, John said he wasn't Elijah. However, in Matthew 17 verses 10 to 13, it kind of sounds as though Jesus was saying that John was Elijah, and that has caused the New Agers to believe that Jesus and the New Testament teaches reincarnation. Reincarnation. Tell in first service that Shirley McLean years ago uh, wrote a book called Out on a Limb, where she, you know, endorsed you know, uh, New Age teaching and uh, reincarnation. I read a book by another Christian author who refuted that. His title was Out in a Broken Limb. (laughs) He talked about how that, you know, New Agers believe that the New Testament teaches reincarnation. And a lot of it is based upon what Jesus said. And what did he actually say? Well, turn to Matthew 17. Why don't we look at it real quickly? Let me just say before you find that, The New Testament does not teach reincarnation. It teaches what? Resurrection. Resurrection. But um, there's a lot of folks who believe in reincarnation. You just keep getting recycled to get it right. But in Matthew 17, starting with verse 11, let's just go there. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Well, yes and no. All right. Yes, Jesus was talking about John the Baptist in this, when he said, Yes, if, if they would have only accepted me, then John would have been the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi. But not that John was literally Elijah, but remember when the angel Gabriel came to Zacharias, who was burning incense there in the temple, and Zacharias was an old priest. His wife Elizabeth had been barren all their married life. And the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias and says to him that you're going to have a child. Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son, and he shall go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah and will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, and so on. And uh, But he's not going to literally be uh, Elijah. He's going to have Elijah's ministry. And if the folks in Israel would have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, he would have established the kingdom, and then John would have been the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi. Of course, that did not happen. And so that prophecy or promise in Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 is yet to be fulfilled and I believe if you read Revelation 11 and you can go to our study online again I believe the two witnesses one is going to be Elijah the other Moses for reasons I don't have time to get into so I believe Elijah is going to come literally before the great and terrible day of the Lord before God's judgment is poured out you can read Revelation um, those later chapters talk about that so, guys, they were looking for three people. Uh, they figured John must be one of the three. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. The third person these guys were looking for was what they called the prophet. The prophet. Why well, are you that? Are you the prophet? Now you say, well, who is this prophet? Well, they didn't actually know for sure, uh, except Moses had told them that he would come someday. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. Now, this is Moses. This is way back in the wilderness before the children of Israel entered into the promised land. Joshua led them in. He's addressing the people one last time, Moses is. And he said in verse 15, Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And then verse 18, God himself says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Well, they were looking for this prophet then, all right? Maybe John's that guy. We don't know who he is, but Moses talked about him. John, are you the prophet that Moses promised was coming? What they didn't realize was that prophet was Jesus Christ. It was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Of course, they rejected Christ. But getting back to John chapter 1, verse 22, then they said to him, okay, John said, I'm not the Christ, I'm not not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not that prophet you're looking for. So then they basically said, well, who the heck are you? Okay, loose paraphrase. Well, who are you then? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said well here John quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3 which was a prophecy stating that before God's Messiah and King would make his appearance in Israel he would first be preceded by a messenger or a herald hang on to that we'll talk about that more in a moment all right let's just finish up the section we're going to deal with this morning so verse 24 Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees and they asked him saying why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet John answered them saying I baptize with water but there stands one among you whom you do not know it is he uh, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John says, look, why are you baptizing? Who authorized you? If you're not the the Messiah or Elijah or that prophet, we didn't authorize you. If you're not one of them, what gives you the right to baptize? John says, look, I'm baptizing with water. Uh, There's another one coming who's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. You check that out in Matthew 3. All right. Uh, look, I'm just the uh, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making the way straight for him. He's the main act. He's the ma- He's the main person you want to focus on, right now, guys. For the rest of our time this morning, I- I'd like to focus on the ministry of John the Baptist. I know we studied him a couple weeks ago. I want to look at his ministry from a slightly different perspective, though, this morning. I'd like to do it because, you know, Jesus himself said John was the greatest prophet that ever lived. And again, a prophet was a spokesman for God. He was a man sent from God with a message. What was John's message, first of all? Well, his message was very simple, but I'd like you to turn to Matthew 3, and let's look at Matthew 3. So in Matthew 3, verse 1, we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message was basically a message of repentance. Now, the word repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, and it really is a combination of two Greek words that literally mean to have a change of mind. But not just a change of mind that brings sorrow and regret, a change of mind that leads to uh, a change of direction. Think about it this way. You're uh, on the expressway going in one direction and uh, and all, and you realize that you're going in the wrong direction. So what do you do? Well, you find an off-ramp, get off, come up over you know, the overpass and then down the on-ramp and you get back on the expressway going in the opposite direction that in a sense is what repentance is a person is going down the road of life in one direction away from God towards sin and they realize through the conviction of the Holy Spirit they're going in the wrong direction this is not the life I should be living so what do they do they kind of get off the off ramp come around they repent they turn around and now they're not moving away from God any longer they're moving toward God. And of course, the idea is repent by, and then receive Christ, but uh, then you keep the rest of your life going toward God, obedience, and so on. But uh, this is a very important part of the gospel, one that a lot of people have left out today. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But um, it's really the first step of the gospel, you might say. Uh, Jesus said in Ma- and Mark 1, verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. It really is the flip side of the flip sides of the same coin, repent and believe, okay? But when we study the word, sometimes we'll dissect it, okay, and try to put each little part under a microscope to better understand what's going on. In real-life situations, when we witness to somebody about the gospel, the idea of turning. Uh, from the life they're living it simply could simply be just they want to pray the prayer of salvation because they don't want to keep living like this anymore God knows the heart but just so we know that repentance is really the the necessary prerequisite to faith because listen you can't give people the impression that they can believe and get to heaven and that's it without and, and not change the direction of their life I mean that that today, I think a lot of pastors and preachers, um, well, first of all, let me say this. The problem today is that most people don't see themselves as sinners. And as such, they don't really see a need for a Savior. And therefore, they don't feel the need to repent for anything. And the church, for the most part, has kind of um, been guilty in this, in that a lot of pastors and preachers are no longer preaching Repentance. Why? It sounds too negative. They have figured a way around it because they don't want to come across sounding like hellfire and damnation preachers. Repent! You know, that kind of thing. So it kind of carries a negative connotation. We want to keep things kind of positive and upbeat. A lot of people, that's their mentality today. And so a lot of these folks gravitate to a presentation of the gospel kind of like the uh, verse 20 in Revelation chapter 3, where it says jesus said behold i stand at the door and knock the door of your heart if any man opens the door and uh to me i will come into him and dine with him and he with me and so a lot of people will present the gospel that way you know just open the door of your heart to jesus he's knocking open the door of your heart to him and invite him to come in and you'll be saved great wonderful but you're not really telling them that the Christian life involves a change at all. As somebody has said, any so-called faith that doesn't change you doesn't save you. If you study that passage and you look at Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you look right before the word behold, there's a space. Right before the space, there's a period. Right before the period, there's the word repent. Repent we sometimes divorce these things from their context and when we do we do a great disservice to people because we don't give them the whole counsel of god nor do we give them the true gospel again guys the whole purpose of salvation is to turn around and start coming toward god not just the moment you get saved but the rest of your life the idea that i can preach the gospel just open your heart to jesus whatever that really means i don't think even they know and you're going to get be saved, and they think, well, I, I'll open my heart to Jesus as long as I can still live with my boyfriend or girlfriend and do all these other things, right? This is not the gospel, all right? This is not the gospel. We need, and John was a, the kind of a guy who just was a straight shooter. He gave the whole counsel. His his message was a message of repent and believe. Now, I like to look just for the remainder of our time at the ministry of John. We did look at... Uh, one aspect of him and his ministry uh, a few weeks ago but I want to look at the ministry of John the Baptist and can I just say he's really John the baptizer and I say that because believe it or not years ago I had a guy tell me that John that the Baptists were the first denomination of the Christian age I said well how did you get that well John the Baptist see the Baptists were already around in John's day okay no, it's John the baptizer and we will look at more of what it means to baptize next week but let's just, for this morning, rest of our time uh, I want to look at John's ministry in one aspect which was, his, his ministry was essentially a threefold ministry preparation, separation, and confrontation and I'll just get, give these to you quickly first of all, preparation again, Matthew 3, starting with verse 1 in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 3, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, what? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Again, quoting out of Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but let me just, there's new people here, let me just say it again. Whenever a king was to visit an area of his kingdom, those who worked for the king would always send a herald out several weeks or maybe even several months in advance to tell people the king was going to be coming. The roads in that area would need to be fixed. The potholes and the ruts would need to be filled in. The high places leveled off. The crooked places made straight. You know, you get, you know there's a municipal projects that had to be done Before the king could come. But also the herald would apply his message to individuals. He would say, your yards need to be cleaned or cleared. Your fence is mended. The king is coming. Let's get things cleaned up and ready is the idea. Again, whenever a king was coming to visit an area, there was just a lot of preparation that would go into the king's coming beforehand. And the herald would always precede the coming of the king to make sure everything was ready. Matthew 3, verse 3 is quoting again from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And let me just say this to you. This is one of those passages or statements that is quoted by all four gospel writers. Quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3 about the herald who would come before the Messiah and a voice in the wilderness. Whenever you see something repeated in all four Gospels, it's because the Holy Spirit. It's so important the Holy Spirit wanted every Gospel writer to mention it. Now, if something's mentioned just once in the Gospel, it's still the Word of God. It's important. But four times? Wow. It means this is something God wants you to really understand. And what does the Holy Spirit want us to really understand? that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah because the true Messiah was prophesied he would have a forerunner and that forerunner was John the Baptist now of course Jesus proved he was Messiah through many other ways but John, if if they would if the disciples would have come presenting Jesus as Messiah and he had no forerunner the Jews would have written him off they would never have believed in Jesus cuz they knew what Isaiah prophesied okay so John was the forerunner he was the one telling people To prepare for the coming of Messiah, the king. Only John wasn't referring to outward cleansing of yards and houses, but the inward preparation and cleansing of the heart through repentance. That's what he was talking about. So, first of all, his ministry was one of preparation. Secondly, it was one of separation. Guys, John lived a a life of separation from the world. He was a voice crying, Where? In the wilderness. Now, I realize from a practical standpoint that John was in the wilderness, primarily the wilderness of Judea, because he was down by the Jordan baptizing people. But I do believe the Holy Spirit is teaching us a lesson here, a spiritual lesson that uh, he wants us to learn. That if we're going to, our ministry is very much like John's, okay? We're calling people to repent and receive Messiah, right? Christ, Jesus. And if we're going to call people to do that, we're basically calling them to separate themselves from the world with all of its sin and enticements. If we're going to do that, guess what? We had better be people who have separated ourselves from the world. Otherwise, we're hypocrites and the world will write hypocrisy destroys ministry. We can't tell people to live separated lives that God wants you to come out, as God said, come out from her, among her, my people, and be separate, talking about the world. We cannot tell people that to be a Krishna means basically you're in the world, but you're not of the world anymore. You're separate from the world now. We can't teach that to people and have it really impact their lives if we are living carnal lives, all wrapped up with the cares of this life, and we're telling people you need to be separate and live for Jesus. They're going to write us off as hypocrites. And I I bring all this up, up because there is a large segment of the Christian church today who is doing this very thing. It's called the Word of Faith Movement. And the Word of Faith Movement teaches that basically, well, what it does is it tries to marry the world with the Lord. It has found a way, it's not right, but it's found a way to teach that you can have both the world and the Lord, and yet Jesus said you can't serve both. You've got to either serve the world or the Lord, but these folks teach that when you accept Christ, you become a child of the King, the King, God Almighty. And you know what? As parents, don't you want your kids to have the best? I mean, if you're a wealthy person, do you want your kids walking around with uh, holes in their shoes and ratty clothes that they garbage picked? That kind of no. You want your kids dressed in the finest clothes and so on and so. On. You want your kids to have the best. What makes you think God is any less? If you're a child of God, then God wants you to live in the best house. He wants you to wear the finest clothes. He wants you to drive the the fanciest car. You know, you have to really show the world you're a king's kid. Because if you're driving a Chevy and you're a child of God, that's a sin. You should be driving a Cadillac. What does it look like for you as a a, a child of the king to be driving a broken-down Chevy Nova? You should be driving the nicest car in the in town now how are you going to preach that and then tell people in any way shape or form they have to live a separate life in the world you can't again as christians we live in the world but we are not a part of the world john lived a separated life that's what made his ministry so powerful because he was no hypocrite he lived what he preached right and not only did he live a, did he live a separated life, he li- lived a simple life. Matthew 3, verse 4, John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now look, uh, the Bible advocates us living a simple life. I'm not so sure we have to go out in the wilderness and eat bugs and honey <laughs> to fulfill what that means. John had a special ministry, okay? I mean, he had a unique ministry, right? Right? but the bible does talk about us living a simple life and that doesn't mean we can't have a nice house or you know have a nice car to drive it just means that we're not obsessed with materialism you know because the more again we wrap ourselves in the cares of this life something paul said not to do the less effective we're going to be in our ministry for the lord because you know a big part of it is why because the more you wrap yourself in the cares of this life the more you love the things of this world and if you love the thing, Jesus said, your, your 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 heart is going to be where your treasure is. If your treasure is the world, your heart's going to be there. And that's what you're going to live for, okay? Now, I want you to know something. Now, John purposely went the extra mile to live out in the wilderness, I'm convinced. Yeah, there was water down there, he was baptizing, that's true. But don't forget, again, 400 years had passed before, and there was no prophet in Israel. John shows up. This guy could have been the biggest celebrity the nation had seen for many hundreds of years. I am sure, as the first prophet in 400 years, a lot of wealthy people would have wanted to connect with John sponsored his ministry, uh, had him clothed in the finest clothes. He could have eaten the finest food. Uh, they would have given him a nice, the nicest house in the area to live in. Uh, he could have ministered in their homes, mansions at that time. He could have really been a celebrity preacher like a lot of guys today who've fallen into that. John was not about being a celebrity. He was just about being a servant of God. And as such, he didn't want anyone to... There are things that I can do as a child of God because I'm saved by grace. I could drive a fancy Cadillac or something like that. I could wear a Rolex watch. I mean, that's not gonna keep me out of heaven that I own these things. I would never wear that. In fact, my pastor was given two Rolex watches, never wore them. Gave one away to his son-in-law, never wore the other one, why? Never drove a fancy car, why? Because he didn't want to give people the impression that he was all about the money. Because, you know, how people look at a pastor, he's driving a, you know, a BMW or he's wearing a, you know, a Rolex or something. And what do they think? Another guy in it for the money. I know they're all hypocrites, all these preachers. Well, there are some who are hypocrites, a lot of other guys who are not. And, um, John was one of those guys. He just wanted to live a simple life so that nobody ever got the impression John was in it for the bucks or whatever. So John lived. His ministry was all about preparation, separation, and finally confrontation. Again, guys, John's goal was not to build a big ministry by watering down the message so as to make it more appealing to those living in his day. I won't read it to you, but Matthew 3, verses 5 to 12. Eventually, his ministry caught the attention of some of these religious leaders who were nothing but hypocrites, these Sadducees and Pharisees. And so they come out to John one day to be baptized by him. Now, what did John say? If John had been a man-pleaser, if John had been the kind of guy that was looking for recognition, and, of course, the more famous a person attaches himself to my ministry, where we can get a little selfie together... You know, and I can go out on Facebook. Look who I hobnob with, you know, that kind of thing. If John had been that kind of guy when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, he could have said, well, praise the Lord. I'm so glad you guys came out. Boy, this is gonna really, this is gonna really go a long way in promoting my ministry to have you guys next to me and so on, be getting baptized by me. Now make sure the cameras are right. We want to get a nice shot of this. What did John say to these guys? You children of snakes, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And don't even think to say that we're children of Abraham. God can raise kids uh, to Abraham from these stones. What God wants is repentance. And don't say you've just repented. Let's see the fruit of your repentance. Let's see that your life has changed. Then you come back here and I'll be happy to baptize you. I'm not all about images. I'm not about you guys, you know, uh, playing the the, the game here. God wants sincerity. The point is, John didn't capitulate to the culture. He didn't embrace the culture. He confronted the culture. Again, he wasn't out to make a ministry name for himself by tickling ears, telling people what they wanted to hear. You know, unlike today, um, so many preachers are tickling ears that was a sign of the last days paul said that would be one of the evidences of the last days Uh, people wouldn't want to hear sound teaching anymore from the bible they would want to gather to themselves celebrity pastors basically who will tickle their ears telling them what they want to hear again the word of faith movement is a total fulfillment of that tell me how i can be rich tell me how i can be successful pick up the cross follow i don't hear that okay that's why you don't hear those things in these churches Paul was no man pleaser. You don't have to turn these, I'll turn to these, I'll just read them to you. Galatians 1, verse 10. Paul said, For do I now persuade men? He just blasted the Galatians for their for their hypocrisy and carnality and so on, and for embracing false teachers. And he, he blasts them. He confronted them. He said, Do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, if I was a man pleaser, I would no longer be a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, God has given us the gospel to go out and preach it, even so we speak, listen, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Listen, God is all about testing our hearts, not for his benefit. He knows what's in our hearts for our benefit. Sometimes we're deceived by our own hearts. Uh, Jeremiah 17 9 the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it God says I know it and I'll let you know what's in your heart from time to time if you're you know operating in a way that you think you know what's going on but you don't know your own heart God is all about confronting sin and that was the ministry of John the Baptist I personally don't think John would be invited to many churches today because his message was way too negative for a lot of pastors and preachers today you know just too negative all this repent stuff man you know and plus that outfit he wears scares people no i we we don't want john here he's too negative okay too negative um and their minds you know his message would be too harsh and judgmental too unloving you know condemning uh for their liking i think a lot of christians today would say in response to john's message something along these lines i don't believe we should talk about judgment when we present the gospel i mean god is a god of love we should use love not fear of judgment to win people to christ now look if that's where you're coming from i understand what you're saying i personally love to talk about god's love more than coming judgment myself but look you must have a balance because the only focus on God's love and exclude any talk of coming judgment you're not being faithful to the whole counsel of God remember what Jude said in his little one chapter epistle verses 22 and 3 he said on some that you witness to have compassion making a distinction but others save with fear pulling them out of the fire fires of hell Look, if you go to somebody and you start preaching the gospel and you start talking about sin and they drop their head and they say, I know I'm a sinner. I, I, I know I'm a sinner. You come around, put your arm around them and say, you know, God loves sinners. You know, you're, they are already acknowledging their sinners. They don't need for you to hit them with that. Now you need to tell them how much God loves them as sinners and has provided a way for them to go to heaven. You start talking to somebody about the gospel and, and sin and they basically, I never sinned. Well, now you, now you need to get the hammer out and blast them a little bit, okay? You know, you know, scare them with the fire of hell a little bit. Whatever you have to do to save people, you know, it's okay, all right, to, a, to an extent. But look, and we're, we're, we're done. Too many preachers and pastors today have stopped urging people to receive Jesus as the one who will save them from hell and have turned him into a sanctified butler whose job it is to save them from all the discomforts of life. As one pastor put it, these, for these folks, prayer then becomes ringing a little bell calling for butler Jesus to bring them up another pillow. And that's what we see today, you know. I want to just tell you this, John the Baptist and Jesus himself were both hellfire and damnation preachers. You realize that? Now, you can be a hellfire and damnation preacher and preach in love and compassion, but they still preach the reality of hell, both of them. And guys, the whole point of preaching the gospel is to tell people that God wants to save them. It used to be pretty clear what that meant. Today, it's not so clear. What does that mean today? God wants to save you. If you listen to some pastors on the radio, it would be save them from... um, Poverty from depression, from low self-esteem? No. Save them from hell. That's what the gospel is. If you remove judgment from the preaching of the gospel, you know you've turned it into? Happy talk. Happy talk. Because you only want people to feel good. I've used the illustration before. Let me use it again. You're in bed sleeping, 3 o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden you hear your community siren go off, warning you a hurricane, a hurricane. Well, maybe they do. In the Midwest, we have tornadoes. It's a tornado siren, right? And when you hear that, it's so loud, it basically jolts you awake. Your heart is pounding. What is that siren intended to do? Make you feel warm and fuzzy and good? It's supposed to, to scare the you-know-what out of you. Why? Because something bad is coming and you need to take shelter if you don't want to lose your life. Folks, this is basically what the gospel was intended to be by God. It was God's alarm system warning sinners something bad is coming, God's judgment and if you don't want to go to hell forever you better make (laughs) plans right now or receive Christ. right, take shelter in Christ by faith to escape what's coming today. It's all happy talk. God loves you. Come to Christ. He's going to bless your business. You're going to drive the nicest car in town, blah, blah, blah. How sad. How sad. I remember reading about the great awakenings of the 1700s and the preachers God used. You talk about men that were not afraid to confront the culture. I think of like Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, was not a great preacher in the way you might think. John, Jonathan Edwards was not a flamboyant preacher like a lot of guys today. Jonathan Edwards, and he was a Puritan, and the Puritans purposely didn't want to inject a lot of emotion into their messages because they didn't want to, to, uh, uh, to appeal to emotion. They want the Holy Spirit to be the one convicting, Right? Now, Jonathan Edwards was of that uh, mindset, but he was also very nearsighted. And so when he would preach his messages, he would hold them up to his face, about six inches from his face, and he would read them in a very monotone way, only looking up slightly once in a while to stare at the back of the church. This is how he preached his famous sermon, Sinners, in the Hands of an Angry God. Think about that title on a marquee today. Oh yeah, that's going to draw him right in, isn't it? Come on in, hear about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Right. But during the course of that message, Jonathan Edwards, in a very monotone, non-emotional way, said that sinners are walking an icy plank over the pit of hell, and at any time their foot could slip, and they will fall headlong into eternal destruction. If you've ever studied that message, and I have, as Edwards was just very monotonally preaching that message, confronting sin and sinners, the Holy Spirit fell. Suddenly people began to get restless, began to shift. And there was, you heard moans from the congregation as the severe conviction of the Holy Spirit started coming upon them. They moaned. Then they began to shriek some of them. Then they fell out of the pews and literally crawled on their hands and knees to the front to beg God for forgiveness. This is the power of God that falls when we are faithful to doing all that he has called us to do, to give the whole counsel of God, teach the truth in love, but make sure you give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. You water it down. You leave out important parts because you don't want to make people uncomfortable. You want to be a man, please, or not a servant of Christ? You know what? Their blood's going to be on your shoulders. Paul said, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. I mean, can you imagine that message being preached in in our day of political correctness? (laughs) Or again, the goal of so many preachers is to keep things positive, upbeat, and non-confrontational? May God give us the boldness, the commitment, and the passion of John the Baptist today. Guys, he was the herald of the, Jesus' first coming. You know what? We're the heralds of his second coming. If we believe he's coming that soon, and I believe he is, we become the John the Baptist of this generation. Telling people to prepare your hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And if you're a believer, that's going to be a blessed thing. If you're not, not so much. Read Revelation 6 through 19 may God give us the grace to be a voice in the wilderness crying out we are living in a wilderness aren't we a moral and spiritual wilderness may God give us the grace to be a voice crying out in the wilderness in other words to be a people that God has sent and didn't he send us to the Great Commission go into all the world we are sent but to be people sent from God to share his message his gospel with the lost with a lost and dying world. That's our responsibility. And by God's grace, may he give us the strength to do it. Even as John did in his day, may God give us the same grace to do, to be faithful in preaching what God has said in our day. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for men like John the Baptist, Lord, such an example to the rest of us, of someone who lived a separate life. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. And Lord, thank you that that you have called us to now go out into the world to prepare the way for the king he's coming and lord give us the grace the strength the boldness the commitment to preach your message to a dying world with faith and commitment and boldness not watering it down not trying to be a man pleaser but a christ servant give us grace lord And Father, we pray that this church would be used by you in ways we can't even imagine right now in these last days to be a light and a voice. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.